All right, the hearing of the Foreign Relations Committee uh, will come to order. Um, I want to thank our witnesses for being here today and sitting through all of that. And uh, both of you have outlined tangible policy options in your written testimony to help us address the threat of Iranian proxies. Apart from efforts to prevent Iran from attaining a nuclear weapon, Iranian proxies remain a direct threat to the, threat to the United States and our allies today, as your testimony uh, it is. Uh, are you good now? Can't hear me. Thank you, sir. Can you hear that? Thank you. I'd like to thank our witnesses for testifying today. Both of you have outlined tangible policy options in your written testimony to help us address the threat of Iranian proxies. Apart from the efforts to prevent Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon, Iranian proxies remain a direct threat to the United States and our allies today. Currently, Lebanese Hezbollah has at least 100,000 missiles and rockets threatening Israel. Militias in Iraq continue to pose a threat not only to our long-term interest in Iraq, but also a threat to American forces currently deployed there. And just this past October, Iranian-backed Houthi militia fired cruise missiles at U.S. Navy ships. Saudi Arabia, is that working for you, sir? Saudi Arabia continues to feel the effect of Iran proxies and partners as the Houthis attack across the border to Saudi cities and launch extended-range ballistic missiles that could only be deployed with outside help. A recent report by the organization called Conflict Armament Research clearly outlines the destabilizing role played by Iran, highlighting three separate at sea interdictions of Iranian-supplied weapons bound for Yemen and Somalia. At the same time, Lebanese Hezbollah continues to play a decisive role in Syria, while Iran has de demonstrated an amazing capability to deploy Shia militias from around the world to the fight. There is no doubt that the next administration will face a range of threats, from the more traditional threats in the Strait of Hormuz to newfound spheres of Iranian influence like Yemen. One reason that I opposed the nuclear deal with Iran was that I feared it would end up being our de facto Middle East policy um, and that countering Iran's regional efforts um, would, not, uh, would take second fiddle, if you will. The current administration um, has not pushed back in a meaningful way against the Islamic Republic's destabilizing actions in the region. I hope that both of you can help us consider new ways to stem the spread of Iranian weapons, terrorism, and dangerous ideology. I want to thank you both for being here, for sitting through our business meeting, uh, sharing your intellect. And with that, I'd like to turn to our distinguished member and my friend, ranking member, uh, Ben Cardin. Well, Mr. Chairman, thank you for uh, calling this meeting on defeating Iran's threat network of options for countering Iran's Iranian proxies. As you know, Mr. Chairman, I did not support the JCPOA as it was negotiated. One of my greatest concerns was the universe of issues that the JCPOA did not address. Iran's sponsorship of terrorism, its continued ballistic missile testing, its work with Russia to hold, to shield Bashar al-Assad and its deplorable human rights record. These are issues that I have long believed need to be given equal weight and consideration as we contemplate U.S. policy in the Middle East. Iran's state sponsorship of terrorism and its cultivation of violent proxies across the Middle East is an important for our security and that of our allies and partners 
as the Iran nuclear program. Indeed, American citizens, uniformed and civilian, have been victims of Iranian terror. Iran sponsored, directed, trained, and equipped proxy groups are a threat to U.S. forces and American citizens today. This is a problem that directly threatens U.S. security. In my consultations with leaders in the region, it is crystal clear that the Iranian terrorism is on equal grounds with the nuclear threat and government's prioritizations of threats to their security. In Iraq, where we are partnering with the Iraqi government to defeat ISIL, Iran is directing militias that have engaged in sectarian violence and cleansing, putting at risk the stability of Iraq. In Syria, Iran is sending Shia militia to defend a dictator guilty of crimes against humanity in his violent suppression of millions of innocent Syrians. In Yemen, Iran and Lebanese Hezbollah are working with the Houthi rebels to threaten Saudi Arabia and jeopardize broader Gulf security. In Lebanon, Hezbollah's intransigent held hostage the process of forming a government for over two years, and Iran continues to transfer sophisticated weapons that threaten Israel's security. I'll stop listing the examples, but it's clear if you don't have to work hard to identify the fingerprints of Iranian terror across the region. For Iran's leaders and the IRGC, investment in this type of, of unconventional warfare is just enough to keep the region off balance and more than enough to ensure a constant state of instability and unpredictability. Iran's threat network is a shared challenge. In reviewing our options for counting Iran proxies, I believe we must look at the shared solutions. The United States cannot go it alone and eliminate Iran's proxies. There is no unilateral solution. So our approach must take into account the requirement of international cooperation and coordination. In the region, that means intelligence sharing and security cooperation with our partners. Outside the region, that means ensuring that sanctions on Iran for its use of terrorism have meaningful impact. To accomplish a coordinated, multilateral approach to countering Iran's proxies and dismantling the Iran threat network, our partners must trust us and want to work with us. There must be a baseline confidence and a fundamental commitment to their security. They cannot question the American leaders may one day get frustrated and walk away from bilateral security assurances on multilateral agreements. This brings me back to the JCPOA. As I stated earlier, I did not support the JCPOA as it was negotiated. But now that we are in two years of the agreement's implementation, we cannot just walk away without risking the credibility of U.S. commitments, the U.S. leadership role in enforcing sanctions and the security of our partners. I fear that walking away from the JCPOA now amplifies the prospects of war in Iran while leaving the United States isolated. Iran could rush for a nuclear finish line. There would be no more intrusive inspections by the IAEA. And if the United States la lapses in its JCPOA obligations, the rest of the world is not going to follow us with more sanctions. So I hope to work with my colleagues on both sides of the aisle next year on comprehensive Iranian legislation that sets the foundations for the next chapter of the Iran policy. The signal we must send with this legislation is that we are committed to the JCPOA and Congress will rigorously conduct oversight on its enforcement while maintaining credible deterrent of snapback legislation. And Mr. Chairman, I was pleased to see the unanimous support in the United States Senate for the passage of the Iran Sanction Act extension. That was an important step that we took. On the non-nuclear issues, Congress must continue sanctions on Iranian entities and individuals engaged in ballistic or cruise missile proliferation and terrorism or, or human rights violations 
and ensure expedited considerations of new sanctions if Iran directs or conducts an act of terrorism against the United States or substantially increases its operational or financial support for terrorist organizations that threaten U.S. interests or allies. I've introduced legislation that I think would help move that along with many of our colleagues. I look forward to working with the chairman on how we can increase our uh, responsibilities in Congress and to oversight Iran's compliance with the Iran nuclear agreement, but also to deal with their other activities. And I think this discussion today will help us in, in, that, in that work. Thank you very much for those comments. And since you brought up the extension of ISA, I think we all have a huge debt of gratitude to Senator Menendez for his leadership on that issue. I'm glad they're extended, and uh, thank you for that uh, very much. Our first witness is Mr. Matthew McInnes, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Mr. McInnes previously served as senior analyst for the U.S. Department of Defense. Thank you so much for being here. Our second witness is Ms. Melissa Dalton, senior fellow and chief of staff for the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Previously, Ms. Dalton served as at the Department of Defense. Thank you both. I think you all understand you can We'd appreciate it if you'd summarize in about five minutes. Without objection, your written testimony will be entered into the record. And if you would just begin in the order of your introduction, I would appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Chairman Corker, uh, Ranking Member Cardin, and the distinguished committee members. Thank you for inviting me to testify at today's hearing on Iran's support for terrorism and proxies. I'll focus my comments on how that support fits into Iran's strategic priorities and how U.S. policy can best counter it. Please note that while this testimony constitutes my own research and analysis, it draws as well on discussions conducted as part of a working group at the Center for Strategic and International Studies with Ms. Dalton, which aims to analyze potential opportunities to deter Iran after the nuclear deal. I want to stress that at the end of 2016, we are at an inflection point in Iran's strategy in the Middle East. The nuclear deal has given the Islamic Republic new resources and has freed Tehran to focus on building its conventional military capacity to compete with its regional rivals more directly. Iran is also sensing, finally, some form of victory in the wars in Syria and Iraq. In the aftermath of these conflicts, the Iranian leadership will be left with an enormous degree of influence stretching from Beirut to Basra and beyond. Led by its Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, or the IRGC, Tehran will also now have at its disposal a transnational proxy army of Shia militia units with at least a couple hundred thousand personnel, many with new hybrid warfare capabilities developed on the battlefields in Syria and Iraq. This will pose significant challenges to us and our friends in the region. Our traditional approaches to combating Iran's proxies through financial sanctions, weapons shipment interdictions, and occasional counterterrorism operations are well-intended and still needed. These types of actions can mitigate, perhaps contain, or even roll back their capabilities, but they will not likely defeat or eliminate the threat posed by these types of Iranian-backed groups, especially well-established ones like Lebanese Hezbollah. How should we better tailor our approach to countering Iranian proxies, especially if defeating them is our ultimate goal? There are two keys. First is understanding how proxies fit into Iran's overall political and military strategy. Though Iran establishes its proxies first to execute unconventional warfare and then spread its ideological and political influence, these groups often become essential parts of Iran's frontline deterrent strategy once established. This deterrence exists via two layers. First is retaliatory deterrence, the ability to instill fear of significant casualties, destruction of critical infrastructure, or economic destruction to dissuade Tehran's more powerful enemies, such as Israel or the US. 
This draws from what Khamenei, Supreme Leader Khamenei and others have described threat in response to threat doctrines. Proxies also give plausible deniability to help Iran manage escalation in, in retaliation. Since Iran, for example, cannot strike the U.S. homeland conventionally, it tries to threaten through terrorism to balance the deterrence equation. The second layer is through passive deterrence, which is more latent, which involves states such as its ability to build proxies in Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon that are already within Iran's sphere of influence. These are groups such as the popular mobilization forces in Iraq and the national defense forces in Syria that we have seen in recent years. The, these are built to basically solidify Iran's influence in these states and dissuade any future militaries, such as ours or others, or perhaps even Russia's, from potentially trying to pull these states out of Iran's influence or sphere of influence. These are something that could potentially threaten, uh, you know, the U.S.'s military, the future U.S. military presence in the country. The second key is being able to distinguish Iran's true proxies from those groups that are only partners or in the process of becoming a proxies, such as Yemen's al-Houthis. Disruption of this process should be an essential component of our regional policy. The main distinguisher is whether an organization adheres to Iran's revolutionary ideology of Valiat al-Faqi or guardianship of the jurisprudence that recognizes Iran's supreme leader as his ultimate religious and political authority. Groups that do not acknowledge that authority such as uh, the followers of Iraqi Shia cleric Muttad al-Sadr, the al-Houthis in Yemen, or even Sunni militant groups such as Hamas, still enjoy significant support from Iran and cooperate with Iran's foreign policies. However, Iran cannot reliably depend on these organizations to form the front lines of its retaliatory deterrence against adversaries, or even to consistently execute Iran's leadership directives. So looking to US policy recommendations, as long as Iran continues to ideologically oppose the United States and sees Washington as a threat to its existence, it will seek deterrence through its proxies, unconventional weapons, or whatever feasible means it can support. However, the United States can take steps to mitigate and disrupt the deterrent effect of its proxies. Four, principles in such a, four or five principles in such an approach include, first, exposing and demystifying the psychological foundations of the proxies' deterrent strength. Greater efforts by the U.S. to name and shame Iranian-backed groups, front companies, and financial activities could erode the psychological foundation of Tehran's deterrent strength. Second, contain and push back IRGC operations to support U.S. proxies. Third, divide and undermine local support to proxies. The Iran's heavy-handed approach frequently stokes nationalist resentment that we can take advantage of. Fourth, stem proxy formation and help shape the governing environment where we can. This is particularly important in places like Yemen, where the proxies are not yet quite there and are fully supported uh, and fully adhere to Iranian ideology. We can prevent the Houthis from becoming fully part of, uh, part of Iran's uh, uh, operations. Fifth and finally, we should support full whole of government approaches, such as is supported in the Countering Iran Threats Act of 2016. This, those type legislation such as that recognizes that need. The bottom line, the U.S. cannot alter the fundamental logic Iran's creation of proxies to counter and deter the conventional advantage, power advantage of the U.S. and its allies um, without fundamental changes in Tehran's threat perceptions or real and ideological changes within the leadership. In the interim, we can, however, mitigate the growth, and under, the growth of Iran's proxies and undermine the real and effective psychological power that they have. And with that, I conclude my statement. Thank you. 
Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, and distinguished members of the committee, it is an honor to testify before you today with my excellent colleague, Matthew McInnes, on options for countering Iranian proxies. This testimony draws from a forthcoming CSIS report on deterring Iran. I will focus my remarks on three topics today, Iran's strategic approach, building a U.S. deterrence strategy, and recommendations for the new Congress and next administration. Iran is a revisionist power that seeks to fulfill a number of goals to change the status quo. These objectives include ensuring survival of the Islamic Republic, deterring adversaries, enhancing its regional power and influence, and securing a place of political and economic importance within the international community. Iran is aware of its conventional military inferiority versus its adversaries. It leverages a range of unconventional and conventional capabilities and concepts of operation, including proxy forces, to achieve its objectives. This approach also encompasses other activities, including missile development, engaging in provocative maritime operations, exploiting cyber vulnerabilities, and employing information operations. It ensures that any escalations against the United States and its regional partners fall short of large-scale warfare. Through this approach, Iran can pursue its goals while avoiding kinetic consequences, enjoy plausible deniability by using proxies, subvert regional rivals and deter them from taking actions that could trigger a potential backlash from the proxy groups, and infiltrate and influence state institutions incrementally in countries with weak governments. Moreover, the wars in Syria and Iraq have provided fertile ground for the growth of Iranian proxies and supported groups. This approach also disadvantages Iran. Through its de destabilizing regional activities, Iran's image as an international pariah remains in many ways the same, impairing its economic development. Iran is also hindered by a principal agent problem versus its proxies, which do not always act in accordance with Iranian interests. The U.S. approach to Iran has deterred significant leaps forward in Iranian activities and capability development, yet the United States has largely been unable to deter Iran's incremental extension of regional power and threshold testing across a range of military and paramilitary activities. Indeed, in the last five years, Iran's threat network has grown. Regional partners doubt U.S. sincerity in pressing back against Iran's destabilizing activities. The next Congress and administration have an opportunity to chart a pathway forward vis-a-vis -vis Iran that protects U.S. interests, strengthens deterrence, and sets the conditions for changing Iran's behavior. The United States may choose to elevate its counterterrorism objectives in its approach to Iran, given the unique challenges that Iran's threat network presents. This strategy will have its limits. Absent ideological changes in the Iranian government, the United States will not be able to change Iran's reasoning for supporting proxy groups. It may prompt Iran to reassess its commitment to the JCPOA, especially if the United States imposes new terrorism-related sanctions that mimic prior nuclear ones. If U.S. action is not calibrated, Iran is likely to respond with kinetic attacks, information operations, and cyber attacks. Working in close coordination with allies and partners, the United States can take a number of steps to limit the reach of Iranian proxy activities and stem further growth of proxies in the region. These measures include ratchet up direct and indirect operations to disrupt IRGC activity and interdict support for proxies calibrated for U.S. and Iranian red lines. Conduct cyber disruption of Iranian proxy activities. Avoid inflating Iranian capabilities and intentions. 
expose Iranian-backed groups, front companies, and financial activities outside its borders to discourage Iranian coercive interference, exploit nationalist sentiment in the region that bristles at Iranian interference through amplified information operations, sustain financial pressure on the IRGC and, and proxies, and minimize the space that the IRGC can exploit in the region by building the capabilities of regional partner security forces and supporting governance and resiliency initiatives in countries vulnerable to Iranian penetration. Even a U.S. strategy that seeks to amplify pressure on Iran cannot be purely punitive or it will prove escalatory and have its limits in changing Iran's behavior. The United States should link possible incentives to changes that Iran makes such that they are synchronized as one move. Congress and the new U.S. administration have an opportunity to chart a pathway forward on Iran policy. I hope that today's hearing can inform that process. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Well, thank you. I'm just going to ask one question and then defer and, and uh, re keep my remaining time for interjections to Senator Menendez. But when, you, when the agreement was being negotiated, I know some of us were in Oman, um, which was, I guess, the Switzerland of, of this deal where many of the meetings took place. Um, one of the things that they would say is that the revolution is over. The revolution's over. Iran is a different place. Obviously, the descriptions that you have just laid out counter that, and the reason you have proxies is to further the revolution. But I wonder if the two of you distinguished uh, witnesses uh, could just very briefly, yes or no, do you believe the revolution is over or not? Um, certainly for the current leadership, it is not. Uh, what I usually uh, argue is that for, for the, this particular leadership, that the revolution is the political infrastructure that allows them to retain power, uh, and they can change the ideology if they want to, but they, don't, they haven't figured out what that change would look like in order to, for them to maintain power. I think everyone in, that follows the region in this town and in academia and around the world asks that question of are they going to have the China in the 1970s moment, the Deng Xiaoping moment? Are they gonna have a Gorbachev moment where you know, they're gonna change the ideology? Um, and the Iranians actually worry a lot about that. They, they debate that internally. Uh, I think they're scared that that's going to happen. Some of them are scared that's gonna happen to them and they're all gonna go through a early 1970s gang of four purges, everyone dies kind of moment when that happens. Uh, and for right now, the revolution still matters uh, and it's what keeps them in power. Ms. Dalton. Hardly agree with uh, Mr. McGinnis's characterization. I would only add that there has historically been tensions in Iranian policy, uh, the pull of ideology, which still is, is quite strong today, but also uh, a, a dose of pragmatism in terms of economic development and a desire to, to have uh, credible standing in the international community. And you see Iran over time trying to balance those two um, elements of, of their policy, um, and there's a push and pull that, that occurs in, in the leadership in trying to strike that balance. And so I think the, the sweet spot that the United States and its international partners have to find is a way to constrain the behavior that um, is a manifestation of, its, of Iran's ideology um, and harness the, the potential of, of the pragmatism. Thank you. Senator Menendez. You want to go ahead? 
Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, <clears throat> thank you to our witnesses. Mr. Chairman, um, it, for a couple of decades now, Iran has sought to uh, extend its brand of governing through terror uh, and intimidation throughout the region. And uh, I know that champions of the JCPOA insisted that with a hold on Iran's nuclear program, uh, that we would be able to expend our resources to combat these more conventional threats from Iran. Uh, and I was looking forward to doing that. Uh, but however, in the past two years since uh, the agreement, we have seen Iran test us in a variety of ways. Uh, even the production of heavy water in violation of the agreement is in of itself the ability to produce that much heavy water is a, a precedent for uh, a set of circumstances which gives them access to other developments of their program. Yes, once we bought it, now they transferred it in the second case, but the reality is that it's a violation of the agreement. But beyond that, in the more conventional way, their engagement in ballistic missile technology in violation of what was UN Security Council resolutions, uh, their engagement on terrorism uh, has not stopped. Uh, their engagement in Iraq and Syria and Yemen uh, are tremendously challenging in terms of uh, our national interests as well as partners in the region. And so it just seems to me that uh, I hope that in the next Congress, uh, colleagues who have been reticent to deal with the non-nuclear issues of Iran will be willing to be engaged uh, in that in a way that I think uh, can be incredibly important to our national security. I, I think that the extension of the Iran Sanctions Act shows that despite all the much ballyhooing that uh, Iran, Iran might walk away from the agreement if the sanctions were extended, that's not quite the contrary. I see them appealing to President-elect Trump not to walk away. So it's very interesting uh, that notwithstanding all the blustering, uh, that the reality is that sanctions have in, in fact uh, not had them move away. Which then brings me to what is it that we do as it relates to all of these actions. And so uh, I'd like to get a sense with you, Mr. McGinnis, you, you mentioned uh, the Counter-Iran Threats uh, Act that uh, Senator Cork and I introduced uh, in this Congress. Uh, what elements of that most particularly do you see as helpful towards this goal? Uh, and what can we do um, with our international partners to effectively enforce uh, UN sanctions on conventional weapons and ballistic missiles. I'd like to hear from both of you on that. Yeah, thank you, Senator Menendez. Uh, you know, in particular, you know, I've, I've always supported taking a very uh, comprehensive look at what Iran is doing, you know, you know from uh, their conventional efforts, the support for terrorism, of course, the nuclear program itself, human rights, the, the, the entire, um, the entire field. I, I think in particular in, in, in the 2016 updates to the bill, uh, including something that I, I've personally advocated for, uh, including a, you know, a, a, a comprehensive strategy you know, for the U.S. government to pursue that you know, the, the defense, state, treasury, uh, DNI are, are, are you know, producing a, a well-coordinated strategy, which when I was in the, in the government, uh, was very difficult, to, uh, to frankly, you know, to, to have, you know, where we really didn't have a, uh, a sense of, you know, all the different elements of, of U.S. national power 
uh, you know, even if you couldn't necessarily have a, a, a fully coordinated effort, at least all the sides were talking to each other, recognizing uh, what we're doing on terrorism, and what we're doing on counterfinance, and what we're doing uh, on our military posture uh, in the region is, is working well with our diplomatic efforts. That, you know, we weren't necessarily always talking well to each other, and so I think this was, that, that in particular I thought is a, would be a huge help. Um, and, and I think when it comes to uh, recognizing the balance of what we did on the nuclear program, one thing, you know, if I can be a little provocative here, you know, what, we, what it took to affect the nuclear program, our efforts on, the, on sanctions uh, and our pressure that we also brought to bear on the diplomatic front and frankly on the military front uh, to bring Iran to the table. Uh, and let's be honest, there was also incentives involved. We conceded on uranium enrichment. Uh, you know, all of that, when you look at that, what it, to bring Iran uh, to negotiate, that was on something that was fundamentally a program that was not existential to Iran. It was very important to Iran, extremely important to them. But the, they didn't have a nuclear weapon yet. And so therefore, the nuclear weapon was not part of their deterrent strategy yet. Therefore, it is something that could theoretically be traded away at the table. It was, it was, an, it was something that could be negotiated. The reason why I focus, you know, try to condense in my, in my testimony about the importance of existential issues. Whereas something like proxies have become existential to Iran. Lebanese Hezbollah is absolutely existential to Iran to deter Israel, for example. Um, their ballistic missiles are something they already have. And therefore, in order for us to pressure Iran to to restrain themselves on their conventional missile program or on something like Lebanese Hezbollah is going to require an effort with us and our allies, frankly, mu a much greater effort than it ever took for us to get them to the table to get to the JCPOA as much as we may not like that agreement. Um, again, not to be such a pessimist about it, uh, but it is something to, to remind that th it, it, is a, it, is a, it is an enormous challenge for us. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't mean that we don't need to do it. Um, it's just that it, it, is a, it is so important to remember that when you're faced with something like the missiles, like the proxies, it is essential for us to understand how important it is to Iran and that if we're going to do it, we have to bring a whole lot of force to bear or we have to bring incentives to bear which is another question. I'll just say, because uh, I see the time's expired, I appreciate your naming and shaming, but I have to be honest with you, I don't get the sense that the Iranians are gonna stop if it's such an existential uh, desire that they need, uh, that naming and sharing is gonna stop the flow. And, I, and I, when we talk about incentives, I read in Ms. Dalton's testimony that you suggest the possibility of including Iran in international organizations. I'm just not sure that a country that violates just about every international norm should be invited into an international organization because uh, that doesn't necessarily change attitudes. If you look at Russia, uh, they've violated international norms, invaded Ukraine, annexed Crimea, uh, are in Syria uh, supporting a dictatorship that chemical bombs its own people. I'm not sure that invitation to such entities into international organizations is the greatest inducement in the world, but I do think that pursuing the course of money 
to proxies and other entities is incredibly important. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, thank you. Thank you. Senator Rubio. Thank you. Um, I think we were all happy at least this earlier this year to see American citizens that had been unjustly held by Iran returned, irrespective of the circumstances under which that happened, which were uh, less than ideal. But one of them was not Robert Levinson, who's an American that's been missing now for a very long time. And since that time, we've seen in February that Iran arrested Bakr Namazi, whose son was arrested in October, 15, in October of 2015. They were both convicted in October and sentenced to 10 years in prison. And so my question is, uh, and I would like to hear from both of you on this, is, is, there, is in fact Iran using unjust arrest and detention of American citizens as a tool of statecraft to ensure that it receives additional benefits from the United States in the future? And if so, was that incentivized by perhaps the circumstances surrounding the releases we saw earlier in the year? I think that um, Iran sees the, the detention, um, persistent detention of, of U.S. citizens and um, its own citizens um, at times as definitely a source of leverage um, to, to achieve a, a broad set of, of objectives. Um, at the same time, you know, there is, as I mentioned earlier, a, a dose of pragmatism in the regime um, such that there, there is the possibility to broker negotiations to secure the release of, of our citizens. Um, but ensuring that those negotiations uh, happen systematically and are synchronized um, in such a way that we are not rewarding the bad behavior um, but are justly seeking the release of, of our citizens in accordance with international law um, and, and rules of the road. Yeah, I, I mean, I would certainly agree that Iran has a very, very long history of, of taking our citizens as well as citizens from a number of other countries um, as, as leverage points and as uh, it is, frankly, it has been part of their statecraft, you know, since the early 1980s. Um, and, and certainly we have actually seen that increase since the nuclear deal, uh, in my opinion, uh, th that, you know, dual nationals in particular have been a target. Um, and that's actually something that I had uh, written about and anticipated that the Iran, after the nuclear deal, is particularly worried that uh, the opening up, you know, because they're afraid of President Obama's, um, from their perspective, implicit strategy with the deal is that including Iran into the international community is going to start a slow change inside the regime. Um, and the Supreme Leader is very concerned that that may actually happen, and so therefore is clamping down even harder uh, on, on human rights as well as using, you know, you know threatening uh, international uh, Iranian dual national businessmen uh, holding more Americans that visit as hostages, as leverage chips. Um, you know, they're, they're trying to ensure they have as much leverage as possible and discourage, you know, and it's something that they want to ensure that the, the deal does not create positive change inside their society. Well, let me ask about one more thing. Uh, we all uh, saw recently the Boeing sale of aircraft to Iran. I find that to be extremely troubling. It's important to remember that earlier this year, uh, Iran Air was designated for providing material support and services to the IRGC and its Ministry of Defense. Um, that when they were designated in 2011, the Treasury Department noted that rockets or missiles have been transported via Iran Air passenger aircraft and the Islamic Revolutionary Guard officers occasionally take control of Iran Air flights carrying special Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps related cargo. 
Um, in addition to that, we've seen other related airlines like Mahan Air, they're the same or they were. So we've got no indications that these airlines have changed their activities. We have no assurances that Iran is not going to use these Boeing planes in the same way that they've used other aircraft. I understand that some will argue, well, it would be a violation of the contract. Well, where did, where, I don't know where they intend to enforce that. What court are they going to take that to? But I guess, given your background on Iran, when they received this aircraft from Boeing, is it your view, and again, I'd ask both of you, that uh, we should expect to see the likelihood that these aircraft will be used the exact same way aircraft have been used in the past by Iran Air and by others to assist the IRRGC and, and other uh, designated entities? Um, I would expect, uh, given Iran's history with, with such aircraft, there will be some that will be used in that manner and there will be some that will be used for their commercial purposes. I, uh, Iran has a very long use of dual, dual use of all capabilities and technology that it, it acquires, so I would, I would be surprised if they don't. That would be my answer. I think that this um, is, is very illustrative of, of the need to, going forward in the new Congress and new administration, really chart a holistic approach to, to Iran, um, such that we can sequence the, the moves that we would like to make in, in shoring up our deterrence, while at the same time incentivizing behavior changes such that they are synchronized. Um, in, in constructing a framework that way, you can evaluate the risks that, that you are, are highlighting if, if we are to consider certain incentives. Can certain commercial transactions lead to Iran using those products for dual-use purposes in ways that are contra contrary to U.S. interests? Then perhaps in the greater context of our strategy, that does not make sense. Um, so I would encourage the next administration and the next Congress to evaluate um, programming that we already have underway, initiatives that we have already started, um, but in the context of, of a grander strategy that, that seeks to strengthen our dis deterrence, secure our interests, and protect our allies and partners. Well, thank you both for your, for your testimony. One of the areas that concerned me in regards to the oversight by Congress of the nuclear agreement was uh, expressed in legislation that I referred to earlier that was co-sponsored by many of my colleagues, and that is for Congress to understand where the sanction relief resources are being used by the Iranians. If they're used to enhance their economic uh, fairness to its citizens, I think all of us would say that's is well. So we should well support that type of uh, efforts. But if it's used to enhance their support for terrorism, or to um, use it to advance a ballistic missile program, then obviously that's a different story. So, can you share with us how you believe the sanction relief resources have been used by the Iranians? and whether you've seen any uptick or not in their other uh, activities. Well, I think, I think still most, uh, most analysts would agree that the, the majority of the sanctions relief uh, in, in a broader sense, especially the, the incoming, uh, say for example, oil sales and uh, FDI and uh, foreign direct investment that's gone in, in a broad sense, probably the majority of that is still going into uh, what can be more 
non, say, non-terrorism, non-proxy, non-IRGC-related uh, activities. But what we're seeing, you know, for example, is that the IRGC is, tr is trying to ensure close to 10% of all the incoming foreign direct investment is going to be dedicated to their activities. That's something they're trying to get kind of insured as a regular percentage. Uh, we've seen some of these direct transfers. Um, what type of investments would these be? Uh, ju just anything, that, for example, any type of incoming deals that Iran is striking uh, with foreign companies to do investment anything from any type of industry, auto, air, uh, energy sector, uh, that basically the IRGC is looking for its cut, uh, that it's, it's going to get a, a certain cut of that. Would that come from the Iranians or would that come from the investor? Uh, that would come from the, that whatever the deal is signed is that 10% of it would go to into IRGC funding somewhere in within the budget budgetary system. Um, the IRGC has all sorts of kind of gray budget uh, capacity uh, to funnel money within the, within the system, and, and that's still being argued within. The, there's a lot of back and forth happening right now in the in the Iranian budget about who's going to get what from the largesse coming out of out of the. But the has deal. in fact have they gotten their cut on these projects? I actually, I actually, I don't know if they've actually finalized that. That is what they've been arguing for uh, in the, in the recent budget fights. Um, but we we also know that that some of the the actual like transfers of money that have been coming into uh, since the deal was 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 implemented, have actually kind of doubled the military's budget for like a one-year term uh, because of the transfers that have come in from the one-time deals. Whether that's going to continue uh, into subsequent years is undetermined. So basically, the the IRGC is getting like a one-year bump uh, this 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 year. That's quite significant. Whether that's going to continue into the out years is uncertain. Um, but so, so we are seeing a, a very significant influx. A lot of that, of course, is going into sustaining up what we can, what you would consider OCO funding that's going into sustaining operations into Syria and Iraq. How that's going to flow into building, for example, are they going to build a new air force? Are they going to try to recapitalize their navy? Are they trying to try to build new proxies, you know, in the Arabian Peninsula or in Africa or in South Asia? Th those are questions so I'm not let, quite let sure. Me, sir, I think we all would acknowledge that prior to the agreement, nuclear agreement, Iran's economy was in pretty bad shape. Yes. Because of sanctions. Serious recession, yeah. Sanctions were, were really having a major yes. impact. We can certainly also acknowledge that Iran has been actively engaged in its proxy activities, um, and whether they could have done that with or without these resources, we don't know, but they're actively engaged in, in proxy campaigns. How can we learn the lesson from how we impose sanctions for the nuclear activities and figure out a, a way that we can make our san sanctions regime on ballistic missiles and on uh, sponsoring terrorism and human rights violations more effective to be consequential to change behavior in Iran. Dalton, do you want to try that one? Yes, thank you, Senator. I, great question. I think that um, we can certainly extract lessons learned for, from how Iran is leveraging uh, the, the funding from the sanctions relief um, and apply it to future cases of, of sanctions, perhaps building in off-ramps um, or learning from the snapback effects um, that were used in the in the nuclear negotiations and resulting sanctions um, to, to better understand first um, how money flows and, and operates in the, the Iranian system um, and then basically create 
trigger mechanisms, um, indicators that, that we can look for um, such that if sanctions relief um, or sanctions are put in place for future missile development, future proxy activities, that action can be taken to revoke any sort of, of relief um, if Iran goes down a certain pathway. So I think building that into to the system up front as we design a holistic approach would be wise. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I want to follow up on the, on the money. We had a hearing last week and we talked about that, but I want to also talk about the connection between the IRGC and the money trail. I'm very concerned about, and by the way, we had a question earlier, is the revolutionary, revolutionary, revolution dead? Well, by definition, the RAG, RGC, IRGC, it's in their name. I mean, they, they, their existence depends on this being a continued exportable revolution, in my opinion. But the, the point that the IRGC, just like the PLA years ago, used to have a significant portion of China's economy. IRGC has up to 20 to 30 percent of Iran's economy, which means they have an ongoing source of revenue to export and support terrorism around the world. And we know from the Treasury Department's own report of weapons of mass destruction support, support for terrorism, Hezbollah, uh, Bashar al-Assad, uh, militia, uh, the, Sh the Shiite militias just in Iraq with, that we know since 2005 have, have actually killed more than 500 U.S. soldiers. The Houthi rebels, I mean, the, the list goes on and on. Uh, uh, Boko Haram, I mean, all across the entire uh, region. We know the IRG IRGC plays an important role. The question is, is how can we, in a post-deal environment, use our economic sanctioning ability and our financial ability to um, get at the flow of money through the IRGC to these terrorists. And the reason I'm asking that is that the money flow, I would, uh, Mr. McKinnis, I, I don't disagree with you, but there's still money to come. We're opening up economic sanctions, releasing sanctions. We know they've got assets in other countries. So this money flow is not just a one-time deal. The $33 billion in cash and gold, yeah, they'll get a bump this year. But they're going to continue to get increased availability of cash or, or you know, uh, uh, spendable money into their nefarious activities. Um, so my question to both of you is, what would you, how would you advise the next administration with the IRGC and the money flows and the releasing of sanctions and the opening up of business over there? Uh, what's our role? How can we play a, a hindrance? How can we hinder their ability to further support terrorism around the world? Well, I, I think it, what, what you get to, and, and you're absolutely right that, you know, th this one-time this one bump is, you know, is a one-time, you know, event that but they'll certainly continue on what in thinking about the, the last question I think what we're looking for is how do you create you know an Iran that is you know that is certainly going to go through a degree of economic expansion over the next few years at least according to most most uh, most estimates you know but how do you create a recession in the IRGC's economy uh, you know how do you separate that out I'm sorry to interrupt but but yeah. it, even before they yeah. have an economic renaissance just releasing their assets yeah. with other countries means there's a flow of cash that's yeah. coming to them immediately, independent of whether their economy grows. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. And, and and the issue, I think, one of the things, and you're you're right to also bring up the PLA, because uh, I actually, prior to doing Middle East for a number of years, I actually worked on, on, on China security issues and familiar with the whole PLA uh, business model uh, concerns. And in, in, in that process of getting the PLA out of business, the Iran may at some point in time go through the same process because they were running into the, some of the same problems that China did uh, in that. And But I, I think that the, the Iranians, th there's a recognition 
that over time, you know, it is going to become a problem for the IRGC to play the, if it's going to, to actually have this type of, you know, dynamic economy that integrates with the rest of the world, the IRGC eventually is going to have to take probably a lesser role. Um, but I think that the key for that is whether, you know, the, the problem with the nuclear deal that many of us talk about, um, well, there's many problems with it, but the, one of the biggest problems is that, you know, is that it's front-loaded to Iran's favor, you know, in that they get most of the benefits up front, we get the benefits if they actually don't build a bomb at the end, you know, in, in throughout the entire period. But part of the reason what you can change that equation is if the front loading doesn't actually happen at all at the front, where the business climate is not completely favorable at the beginning. And that's where the, you know, you change this dynamic that's, that happened in the last 12 months or so, where we, we, we go out there and we're encouraging the, the international community to, to invest in Iran and we, we relax the, the issues of, of using dollars, you know, using dollars for, for business transactions for foreign companies. We, we do all these things to make it easier to invest in Iran. Uh, we, we make it so it's not so problematic if a, if a foreign company, if a U.S. company with a foreign subsidiary does business with guys that have, uh, and that company has IRGC guys in the back room or somewhere on their corporate board. You know, we've, we, we relaxed a lot of those rules recently. Um, all those rules and with the incoming administration or with rules coming from, from this body, some of that stuff can be reversed. You can change the front loading. You can make it more conditional that it, that business climate and that money flow and it particularly and, and place the burden back on Iranian business that the IRGC's role and the money the IRGC business and businesses related to the IRGC or th that they become a business, you know, uh, you know, burden, um, you know, that that is something you can change that equation, I believe, and focus on that, uh, and create and make those businesses recessionary, uh, and and so I think that that is something that that could be looked at and and, and focused on. I'm sorry, Mr. Chairman, I'm out of time, but uh, could I ask your forbearance and ask Ms. Dalton to respond that question? I'm sorry, Ms. Dalton. Thank you very much. Um, I I think that in addition to what Mr. McInnes laid out. Um, Harnessing the, the coalition that was used to broker the JCPOA on approach to Iran going forward is, is going to be of paramount Im importance. Um, the reality is there, there are limits to what the United States can do directly vis-a-vis -vis the IRGC, but, but leveraging the broader coalition of, of P5 plus one, um, perhaps even some, some Asian allies and Asian allies and partners uh, would, would be a, a broader and uh, more holistic approach to, to addressing this problem set. Um, and, and I think that another dimension of this could be thinking of creative ways to offset the IRGC over the long term. Um, and put something a little bit provocative on, on the table that was in my written testimony and would be welcome further discussion on it. Um, but, but something my, my colleagues and I have been discussing is over the long term, at the end of the JCPOA period um, in 2020, um, the, the, ex the sanctions on an international ban on conventional arms sales to, to Iran will be lifted. Is there a future scenario in which... That's five years, right? Yes, in, in 2020. Right. Um, is there a future scenario in which Iran is able to 
divert funds to its conventional arms capability and, and a, away from, from the IRGC. Um, as, as Matt has pointed out, the IRGC is, is front and center to the ideological ambitions of the regime. Um, but in terms of Iran's pragmatic interests in the region, its power projection, um, its desire to have a political um, and strategic role in the region, um, that often can come from a conventional capability. Um, so, you know, this is, it's an issue in which the United States perhaps doesn't want to be forward leaning on, um, but is it, is it possible for, uh, to the, for the United States to tacitly allow for, over time, the development of Iran's conventional capability to offset Iranian investments in the IRGC, which have historically run up against and, and threatened the interests of the United States and its allies and partners. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Shane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you both for being here this afternoon. You both talked about um, Iran's operations in Syria, but I, I don't think I heard you talk about how they view the Islamic State and I wonder if each of you could characterize how you believe Iran views the Islamic State. Iran, in overall Iran, views the Islamic State as, as certainly a very significant, dire, and theoretically at least, an existential threat. Um, I think they certainly do not view it right now as, as an imminent threat. Um, given the, its, its current state of, of military, um, potential military weakness. Um, but they, they certainly view it as, uh, as an extension of, of efforts from Saudi Arabia uh, and, frankly, from us. I mean, they blame both us and Saudi Arabia for creating ISIS. Um, and 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 for you know and and they see ISIS as behind uh, terrorist cells and activities inside their own country. Um, they have a growing fear of ISIS growing inside Afghanistan, and they are building. Um, they're trying to build up their own security forces and and new proxy forces and capabilities inside Afghanistan to deal with ISIS there which is an interesting kind of side theater that's developing. Um, in Syria, of course, it's been a different, slightly different story because similar you know, to President Assad, they have cynically used ISIS uh, as a good excuse uh, to, uh, to fight uh, the, the, the rebel opposition um, and, and lumping all of those as, as terrorists and ISIS was a convenient excuse and they frankly didn't really go up against ISIS much during the civil war over the last few years. Um, but they, they certainly look at ISIS as a, as a real, in, in 2014, it was a very clear threat. Um, and they, they are the ones that, frankly, if it was not for the Iranian intervention on the ground uh, in June 2014, it is likely that ISIS could have made it into the outskirts of Baghdad, and, and the Iranian government knows that. Uh, so they, excuse me yeah. for interrupting, yeah. um, but my time is running. Ms. Dalton, do you agree with that? And, and then could I ask you both, given that, what, how should the U.S. view our relationship with Iran with respect to ISIS? I think that Iran uh, definitely views ISIS as a significant threat um, to, to its interests in, in the region, a manifestation of Sunni extremism um, that, that is highly destabilizing. I think Iran ideally um, enjoys 
uh, a degree of instability in, in the region. Um, it's through that level of instability, instability and chaos that um, it is able to use its asymmetric influence and capabilities most effectively. Um, but it is not in the long-term Iranian interest to have the level of instability and disorder that, that ISIS has been sowing. Um, I think the, the end game for Iran in both Syria and Iraq is a pliable government um, that is uh, sympathetic to Iranian interests, um, that is going to push back against uh, ISIS and like-minded groups. Um, but its, its hedge in that is, of course, the development of uh, Shia militias in, in both countries. Um, and so while there is short-term convergence with the United States in countering ISIS, over the long term, um, I think Iran and the United States are going to be at loggerheads um, at uh, the, the long-term trajectory for, for both countries. So we shouldn't view their efforts in Iraq, for example, to fight ISIS as um, beneficial to our efforts as well? I, I think that there may be a short-term convergence of, of interests, but I don't think that it should be part of the long-term strategic planning for either Iraq or Syria. Um, I think, Ms. Dalton, it was you who, who mentioned that we should have amplified information operations against Iran. I wonder if you could elaborate on what that means. And there's, there's a number of ways to, to take this. I, from there's kind of the the, the posture that um, seeks to uh, unveil um, Iran's uh, at times inflated capabilities and influence in in the region and really expose it for what it is. Uh, the Iranians are are quite influential and powerful in some ways, um, but they also use their own IO uh, to to project their their power and influence and kind of knit together. Um, all of their capabilities, whether it's proxies, it's missile capability, um, to, to really project their, their influence. And so there's, there's a counter IO strategy that the United States could take to unmask um, what, what Iranian intentions and capabilities truly are, um, acknowledge where they're, they're, they're significant and push back against them. Um, but at the same time, uh, diminish any sort of inflation um, that, that is occurring. Um, I think also there's more of a proactive uh, approach that the United States could take to harness uh, some of the, the nationalist Sunni Arab uh, sentiment um, that are both at the government level and at the popular level that are very concerned about um, the increasing reach of Iran in, in the region um, and to uh, try to, to mobilize uh, some of the, the support um, from the population, from the government um, in support of a strategy that presses back against Iran. Um, so that IO is kind of a uh, connective tissue, if you will, for a deterrence approach that the United States might take going forward. And can I ask just a follow-up yeah, question sure. on that? So do you envision, and Mr. McGinnis, I would ask you to um, jump in on this as well, do you envision a radio-free Europe kind of um, operation, or are you thinking more a social media campaign, or what? Because clearly getting information out to um, the people who would want to influence is challenging. I think there um, are certainly overt and covert uh, 
elements to this. Um, there is inevitably the question of how credible um, some of the overt uh, mechanisms can be um, if it's coming from directly from the United States. So I think um, third parties in, in the region um, that share a similar mindset are, are probably the best uh, overt forms. Um, and then of course there's the covert mechanisms as well, which I think um, we could bolster. Yeah, I, I mean, I just I would agree with uh, almost all of what uh, Ms. Dalton would say. I, I think for the Iranians are voracious consumers uh, of all sorts of media, and they have extremely creative ways to get around pretty much anything that the government throws mm -hmm. up at them. Uh, so I think that there are certainly ways that we can get through uh, to the Iranians. Uh, at the same time, the, the Iranians are becoming increasingly clever at ways of getting around that. Um, it, it is a, is a fascinating environment <laughs> to, to, to work with. Um, but I, I do think that the, the, the Iranians are very keen to hear from us. Uh, I think the Iranian people are. Uh, so I think that it, it's, uh, it, it is still fertile, is, is my opinion. Thank you both very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and the great, great hearing and a lot of great questions have been asked that I won't repeat. I'm going to get into two that I'm, I'm interested in. Ms. Dalton, you said a minute ago that you think we really need to think of a holistic approach to Tehran. You know, the areas we challenge, areas we work together, how do you push and not push too far. And I'm really grappling with the holistic approach to the region. I'm, I'm struck that whether it's in this committee or armed services, we'll often have a hearing on Iran. We'll have separate hearings on Sunni extremism or ISIS. I'm trying to put these together a little bit. Um, when I am in the region and I talk to Lebanese or Syrians in southern Turkey or others, they often talk about their own feeling that they're in, they're, they're being crushed in a proxy war. So the title of this is Iranian proxies, but they talk about being crushed in a proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And they feel that that war is playing out all over the place. And they view it somewhat as a war of two nations and they view it somewhat as Sunni and Shia, and they view it somewhat as Arab and Persian, and they view it somewhat as economic competition, and they view it somewhat as monarchy versus revolutionary guard. But, but they kind of get personified in a proxy war between these two countries, neither of which are going anywhere, both of which are going to be there for a very long time. You used a phrase a second ago, is there a way that we could, we could use uh, Sunni nationalist sentiment against Iran but I would worry that that just might continue to escalate the possibility of this proxy war. We didn't start the proxy war. We can't solve the proxy war. There's a proxy war. And the region is going to be very unstable as long as there's a proxy war between the Saudis and Iran. Um, what are the prospects, if any, for using American influence to try to, if not make it, you know, warm and fuzzy, at least to ratchet down the proxy war as a way of promoting more stability in the region. I think that's the, the million dollar question. Um, I, I think that um, starting with, with the basics, um, you know, in, in a new administration, new Congress have that mm -hmm. uh, political leverage and an opportunity to, to do that, um, to, to engage allies and partners, not just in the region, but, but in Europe and Asia in terms of, of what really matters and, and what it is that, that we want to accomplish. Um, what are the outcomes that, that we want to achieve um, and how best we, we can get there. And then um, working through um, 
you know, perhaps through some scenario-based planning, scenario-based exercises, um, how we can all leverage our comparative advantages um, to, to achieve those, those outcomes. Um, and, and the United States historically has been a great convener, um, a great mobilizer for those kind of conversations, even if it's not at the end of the day, you know, primarily U.S. resources that, that are committed. So I, I do think that there's, there's an opportunity there to, to have a, a fresh conversation despite all the multi-layered uh, challenges that, that you have laid out and, and an opportunity for the U.S. to exert some, some leadership. Um, but, I, but I do think that the, the stakes are stacked pretty high um, against us in terms of this cycle of escalation um, amongst uh, folks in, in the region, um, the, the Sunni Shia dimension, the, the Saudi-Iran um, regional balance. Um, and I think it's, it's trying to, to bring them to the table to look at um, the primarily Iraq, Syria, and Yemen um, and how we can get to a sustainable, enduring outcome for those, those conflicts uh, at, at the political level, but also at, at the military level. Um, and it's, it's gonna involve trade-offs, mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but I think that having that sort of holistic approach, leveraging US leadership to bring um, everyone to the table at the political and military level is, is really important. Let me ask a second question, and I'll, and I'll have Mr. McManus tackle that first, but if, he, if you wanna add something in about the proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia, I'd appreciate it. Um, Iran let Russia use Iranian uh, bases to help conduct bombing operations in support of the Syrian government. Traditionally, there's been some wariness to suspicion to hostility between Iran and Russia. Are you worried at all about an Iran and Russia growing into a more cooperative military partnership? Or do, you, or do you think that would be an unlikely thing to have to, to worry about much? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tackle that one first. I think the, the Iranians and the Russians obviously have an enormously difficult history, uh, deeply suspicious, suspicious of each other. At the same time, there, there's a certain uh, marriage of convenience that is useful for them strategically right now. Um, I think they're both very worried about the other selling the, each other out at the end, I think that there is, uh, in, in Syria being the, the obvious case for that, I think that the, the idea that the Russians may you know, cut a deal with us or with some other power uh, that puts them at a disadvantage at the same time, as I was mentioning in my testimony, this, this latent deterrent capacity that Iran, Iran has spent a lot of time inside Syria in the last few years, Iranianizing the state building this kind of Iran, Iran version of Syria with this national defense forces, uh, recreating parts of the intelligence structures in Syria that it used to only have one guy in Syria, and that was Assad. It didn't have anything else. Now it has a lot of the state, not all of it, but it has large portion of the state that are really kind of under Iranian influence um, to the, on the ground, which Russia really doesn't have. Russia has a lot of conventional power on top, but it, you know, Iran has built a, a kind of a deep state like it's been doing in Iraq for all these years. And I think Iran has its own version of a veto over whatever Russia wants to do inside Syria. So you have this very weird Russian-Iran veto over each other 
in Syria that's really kind of interesting. Um, so I think th at the same time, Russia doesn't necessarily want to manage all of the Middle East. Iran has bigger plans for the Middle East than Russia does. Um, so I think this is where you end up in a, in a situation where I'm very concerned about where Russia uh, wants to go in the region. This, I don't know how Russia is now going to factor into Iran's deterrent strategy, i.e., does any type of confrontation we or the Saudis or the Israelis have with Iran in the future, does that implicitly mean that Russia is going to come in and back up Iran? Um, it, that, does that trigger a Russian intervention or a Russian threat of force if we or the Saudis or the, or the Israelis get, in get into it with the Iranians? I don't know. Um, that's, that's a very big question. Yeah. Um, and my, my time has yeah, expired, I so I think I should defer to Senator Markey at this point, but thank you. Uh, thank you. Um, I want to follow up on Senator Kane. Um, you know, the great fear, obviously, that Israel has is that there's going to be from Tehran through uh, Baghdad, through Damascus, into Lebanon and Hezbollah, this greater threat to Israel, which is going to be greater. The, uh, the Sunni, the Saudi Arabia, they have a fear that through Baghdad, through um, Tehran, through Damascus, is going to be a greater threat to them. Okay. So, so we have this thing that's developing. It, it's, it, it can be dealt with um, realistically, or we can just step back and wait for the whole dynamic to unfold, right? So we have a choice here as, a, as, our, as Americans to kind of anticipate the inevitable and try to get into this underlying pathology with an intervention uh, in a timely fashion. So we know that going back to the early 80s that uh, the Iranians and the Russians were the partners of Assad's father uh, because the uh, naval base was up in their hometown, the Assad hometown. So we know that's going to be a driving force for the Russians and for the Syrians. Um, and we can see that um, until it's completed, the Russians and the Iranians are going to partner with Hezbollah to help Assad finish the job, not just in Aleppo, but in the other cities where the Sunni moderates remain, uh, <coughs> and that it's more likely than not that they will be successful in accomplishing that. So I guess my question to you is, knowing that, or anticipating that, and knowing that it's highly unlikely that Assad is going to go to the International Criminal Court, uh, <coughs> and that we have to just deal with this realistically, what would you now say to American policymakers about what the United States should be specifically saying to the Russians at this point before the mission is completed for the Shia inside of uh, Syria. What would you say the words that should be spoken to Russia that looks like an understanding that we can reach that kind of de-escalates uh, before there's a rapid escalation that allows the Sunni-Shia rivalry to just spiral out of control? I think um, to first narrowly address the, the problem of the Iranian proxy influence in, in Syria and, and more broadly and the threats that it presents to Israel and the United States and then um, more, more broadly looking at the Syria problem set. 
Um, I think when it comes to what specific steps the United States and its allies and partners can do, I think at a, a military operational level, doing more to interdict and constrict supply lines um, to IRGC-backed groups um, in the region. Um, the Israelis are obviously closely tracking this, um, but the, the more that we can do to work together with other partners in the region as well. To interdict? So the supply lines to IRGC-backed groups that are operating in Syria and more broadly in the region. Um, I think we can step up our efforts to do that such that it undermines the potential for there to be a long-standing IRGC Do you think that can force. be successful? I, I think that there is What do you think the probability of that being successful in the future is? I think that there there are it's likely more that could be done through No, I'm asking what do you think the likelihood is of it being successful at the end of the day? I think that there is likely to be some continuing presence as as a hedge and as a protective force uh, for Assad. Um, in the form of IRGC-backed groups in, in Syria and the Levant, but that we could mitigate um, the reach and, and power of those groups by interdicting um, and cutting off some of the supply lines. Right, but do you see a negotiation that begins? When, I, does, when does that begin in your mind? Yes, I mean, so does it begin? So, so there is there's the military dimension, operational things that we can do. I think at the political and diplomatic level, um, that there are markers that the United States should set down very clearly in terms of the outcome and end state for Syria that limits the the influence and uh, long term presence of IRGC backed groups in Syria. I think okay, that would be. Mr. McGinnis, how would you deal with this in a you know in no. a way that anticipates what looks like it's unfolding to uh, uh, to be, and w when do you start the process of, yeah. of trying to negotiate protections for the Sunnis politically inside of that country yeah. as the Shia uh, continue their inexorable march? How do you, when do you begin the process of protection for, this, for the Sunni? Well, uh, I, I mean, I think this is, in some ways, there's a lot of parallels at this stage to in, in, a, in a more condensed time frame to what's been happening in Iraq over the last uh, 10 to 15 years, uh, where I think you're, you're, you're gonna be dealing with a situation where protecting areas of, of control, where, where the, the, what has happened with the IRGC and, and building up these capabilities like the NDF, um, and in, in some ways there's a certain degree of, I wouldn't say quite sectarian cleansing that's been going on in Syria, but you've, you know, creating what people expect to be these zones of, of, of control or zones of influence that will probably be some form of whatever settlement if we ever get to that point. Um, but I think that the, the Iranians have, have really staked a lot of their hope or what they're going to fight for in any type of settlement is that they're able to con maintain these new forces that they have built as part of the Syrian government's apparatus. Um, and I'm not really sure how you unhinge that, how you leverage that out. Um, and I think really- is it, is it better done sooner than later? It, it's certainly better done sooner than later. I, I think the, the, the irony is that you end up in a situation similar to what we deal with in the Iraqi, uh, in the Iraqi dynamic, where, where you find yourself, as horrible as it sounds, you find yourself that the, Iraq, the Syrian government would rather 
not have to depend on all these Iranian capacities. Um, and I think that there, the, any efforts that can be done as you start forming some type of new reconciliation government, if you can call it that, that does not depend so much on these new capabilities that Iran has built. Do you think that's likely? I, I think it's going to be very, it's going to be very tough. Okay, I, I'm let's, pessimistic then let's about talk it. about it in that context, if you could, just so that. Uh, can you say that again? I said, let's deal with it in the context yeah. of what's likely to happen. It's I, always better yeah. in life to try to start out where you're going to be forced to wind up anyway. Because it gets prettier that way. Yeah. You can try to work it through and just try to be realistic about what is going to happen rather than, you know. I, I, I just I think as much as you can build whatever international support for whatever settlement is there that is dependent as much as possible on local, on local groups, local forces that are Syrian-based and minimize as much as possible what is coming in. Uh, you know that that are that are internationally sponsored, basically not not foreign sponsored groups and militias that are operating there. As much as you can do that, that would be the the best I could hope for. In this, I situation. guess my hope would be that the sooner we can start to be um, realistic about what's going to be needed to help the Sunni population in that country, yeah. so that they're given places where they can return from Lebanon, return from Jordan. Um, where they can be given some guarantees of, of, of uh, being able to coexist under, you know, some ten tension-packed relationships, but what's going on in some of the cities in Iraq right now, um, so that we're beginning to think in those terms rather than allowing for a bloodletting to just continue on indefinitely where we're contributing to the refugee and the, um, uh, and the internally displaced person problem. Uh, without having really anticipated what is, it, what looks like is unfolding, okay? And if you agree with that, then uh, my time has expired, but I thank you both for your expert advice. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, thank you, and uh, Senator Cardin, thank you for a very productive two hours. Um, I think we've had a good closing out. Our witnesses have been outstanding. We thank you for your testimony today and hope that uh, we're going to continue to have written questions uh, through the close of Business Friday. If you could fairly promptly respond to those, we'd appreciate it. Uh, thanks for your service to, our, to your country and being here today and helping us with this. And uh, again, with that, the meeting is adjourned. Thank you. Good business.